0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now.
1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
2: A man goes to a psychoanalyst... He says to the analyst, please sir, I'm desperate. If you cure me, I'll give you my fortune. I'll give you everything, I'm desperate. The analyst says, I don't want your fortune, sir. All I want is 50 quid a session. The man says, 50 pounds, why so much? To which the analyst answers, at least you know the price. At least you know the price. I'm a psychoanalyst, and secrets are my currency. I deal in secrets for a living, the secrets of desire, of what people really want and what they fear the most, the secrets of why love is difficult, sex complicated, living painful, death close, and yet place far away. Why are pleasure and punishment closely related? How do our bodies speak? Why do we make ourselves ill? Why do we fail? And why is pleasure hard to bear? I'm a reader of Minds, and of signs. Sometimes I'm called a shrinkster, a healer, a detective, an opener of doors, or a dirt digger. Like a car mechanic on his back, I work with the underneath or the understory. Fantasies, wishes, lies, dreams, nightmares, the world beneath the world, the true words beneath the false. The weirdest intangible stuff I take very seriously and I'm into places where words can't go, or where they stop, and I do this early in the morning too. Giving sorrow words, I hear the secrets of how people's desire upsets and terrorizes them. The mysteries that burn a hole in the self and distort and even cripple the body. The wounds of experience reopen for the good of the soul as it's made over. At the deepest level you'll find, you probably already know, that people are madder than they want to believe. You will find, if you inspect the invisible and listen out for the soundless, that people fear that they'll be eaten. They also are alarmed by their desire to devour others. They also imagine, in the ordinary course of events, that they will explode, implode, dissolve, or be invaded. People's daily lives are penetrated by fears that their love relations involve, amongst other things, an exchange of urine and feces. As the great, great Viennese satirist Karl Krauss warned, and this was a man characterized by Freud as a mad half-wit, it's the most tragic thing in the world for the fetishist who wants only a shoe but has to marry the whole woman. <laughs> Always, before any of this began, I enjoyed gossip, an essential qualification for my job. Now I get to hear a lot of gossip. A river of human filth flows into me day after day, year after year. Like many modernists, Freud privileged rubbish. You could call him the first artist of the found, making meaning out of that which is usually discarded. It's dirty work getting closely acquainted with the human. There's something else going on in my life now too, almost an incest, and who could have predicted it? Miriam, my older sister, My best friend, Henry, have conceived a passion for one another. Until him, her only other contact with the world of letters was through the postman. Now, all our separate existences are being altered and shaken by this unlikely liaison. It had taken me a long time to come to enjoy my sister, Miriam, since she caused Mum such hair-tearing, brain-worrying upset, and me too, of course but my ex-wife Josephine had liked Miriam sometimes. I think she envied her selfishness, as women often do with one another, saying, however, that Miriam talked and talked in the hope of one day finding something to say, comparing the endless stream of her conversation to the experience of having a plastic bag tightened slowly over your face. I can't forget, though, that whatever chaos Miriam has made here and in Pakistan, and you'll be hearing about that, it's not as bad as the crime that I've committed. You see, I live every day with a murder, a real one. I'm a killer, so watch out out when you're with me. There, I've told you, it's out. Now everything between us is different. Until I put down those words, I trusted only one other person with the information that I was a murderer. I guess if it got round, my career as a doctor might have been impeded. The area in which I live, between Hammersmith and Shepherds Bush, I heard once described as a roundabout surrounded by misery. (laughs) Somebody else suggested it might be twinned with Bogota. (laughs) Henry called Shepherds Bush a great Middle Eastern city. Hijabed Middle Eastern women shop in the market where you can buy massive bolts of vivid cloth, crocodile skin shoes, scratchy underwear, jewelry, snide DVDs, parrots, luggage, as well as illuminated 3D pictures of Mecca and of Jesus. One day, in the old city of Marrakesh, I was asked if I'd ever seen anything like Marrakesh before. I could only reply that I'd come all this way only to be reminded of Shepherd's Bush Market. (laughs) My sister lived in the suburbs of Middlesex, once described as Britain's least popular county. Tonight I was drawn to my sister's face, but kissing my sister was always perilous, and I didn't make a habit of it. You had to take care with my sister to mind the numerous rings and studs which pierced her eyebrows, nose, lips, and chin. Parts of her face resembled a curtain rail. Avoid magnets, was my advice to her. I hated to think of my sister having to get on a plane one day, the airport alarms going berserk. Not that piercings, of course, would probably be a characteristic of terrorists. Now, my sister had five kids, I think it was, from three different men. Or was it three kids from five men? Or seven kids from 12 men? I wasn't the only one to lose count In a corner of her kitchen, Bushy, the minicab driver, and my sister's right-hand man was packing cigarettes into a suitcase. All over the house, there were black sacks of contraband, like a giant's droppings. Before he'd become a cabbie, Bushy had been a burglar. He considered himself to be a mate of mine ever since I told him that as a young man, I myself had been torn between burglary and academia as careers. (laughs) I had, in fact, even taken part in a little burglary. This was, of course, before I became a pornographer. <laughs> you can't say I didn't have the heritage for pornography. My father had been a writer. When Miriam and I were staying with my father in Karachi in the early 80s, Papa liked me to help him with his weekly new- newspaper column, which he'd discussed while being shaved by his servant. Papa, not only thin, but as fragile as a Giacometti, Yet dignified in his white shawar kameez and sandals, my dad was working on a piece ostensibly about families in Pakistan. This was called "The Son-in-Law Also Rises." (laughs) This was giving my dad some difficulty, because once he'd written it straightforwardly, he then had to obscure it, turning it into a kind of poetic code, so that the reader would understand it, but not the obtuse authorities who threatened on a couple of occasions to chuck my dad in jail. So dad's weekly column for the newspaper was always on diverse subjects, all obliquely political. His essay on the fact that people wash too often and would have more personality if they were dirtier, thus expressing themselves more honestly, was really about the water shortages in Karachi. And dad's essay about the subtle beauty of darkness and the velvet folds of the night was really about the daily electricity breakdowns nuclear power. Then one day, visiting my uncle's house in Karachi with my dad, I noticed, standing side on to the door, four doe-eyed beauties. The Raj Quartet, I called them. I contemplated these girls like a cat a box of fresh mice. But it was the youngest I wanted, as she reminded me of my true love, Ajita, who had only recently disappeared. Oh, Ajita, if you are still alive, where are you now? And do you ever think of me? You were my first love, but I was not yours, as it turned out. So, I must begin this story at last, at the beginning, oddly enough. It was the mid-1970s, as it always is. One day, a girl walked into the classroom, as girls tend to walk into classrooms when you're not ready for them. Her face was flushed and uneasy as she came in, half an hour after the class had started, put down her car keys, her cigarettes, and several glossy magazines, none of which had the word philosophy in the title. Now this girl was at one of those chairs with a swiveling flat piece of wood attached for writing on, and she was pulling off her hat, removing her scarf, and trying to lay them on the table, and they slid off, and I picked them up, and put them back, and they fell off again, and Sumi was we smiling at all this. Her, cape, her coat came off next, followed by her jumper. But where would she put all this, and what will be next? This performance, which was embarrassing her and enchanting me, seemed to go on for a long, long time, and with everyone watching. How much clothing, perfume, hair, jewelry, and other frills could there be on the relatively small surface of a girl? <laughs> Suddenly philosophy and the search for truth Which until that moment I had adored, seemed a dingy thing. The grimacing professor in a wrecked pullover and stained trousers, old to us, my age now, or probably younger, and in a fog of valium, as he insisted on informing us, seemed like a clown. We stared at one another wildly whenever he said with emphasis cunt, which, he assured us, was the correct English pronunciation for the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. (laughs) Truth was one thing, but beauty beside me now was clearly another. Agita, will I ever see you again?
1: Uh, While um, Hanif rests his voice, um, I should say for those of you who haven't read the novel, that wasn't an extract. It was a riff, a very wonderfully composed riff of elements in this uh, rich work. Um, it is, as, as that, that sort of um, uh, reading uh, made clear, a, a cogitation on psychoanalysts, psychoanalysis. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, uh, Honey is, among other things, a, a philosophy graduate. Um, it's also a murder story. Uh, and, you know, the secret in the in in the um, in the narrative uh, is one that one shouldn't give away. But in fact, uh, it does it does add a certain kind of page-turning quality to it. But um, from my part, I think everyone will take a different. The a great thing about novels is, of course, that everyone takes different things from them. They're, they're, you know, we define ourselves by reading a novel. Uh, I feel very much having read this novel um, that. Fiction, the kind of fiction that Hanif writes, is the only place nowadays where one gets gets an intelligent um, meditation on race. That's the only place you can discuss race, it seems to me. Frankly, the the whole infantile business about... um, about uh, uh, the, th- the third in, in line to the throne, sort of using uh, an objectionable P word. It seems to me that, that I mean, in, in context, if one compares it, for instance, for... Th- this novel it steadily ends... One, one of the climactic moments is the, um, uh, the July 2005 bombings. And again, it's quite unexpected. Um, and it, it does actually make for a literally kind of explosive conclusion. But if one just looks, for instance, at, at, a, at a passage in in the novel. Um, Miriam had told Ajita what she had told me, that the area where she lived was becoming more racist, with the victims this time being the Muslims. Muslim, or muzzy, was a new insult, along with hamhead and Allah, Allah bomb. In our youth, it had been Paki Wog curry face, but religion had not, put, not been part of it. So a very, very subtle lexicography going on there, and a kind of, uh, it seems to me, kind of thing which as i say it seems to only novelists can do nowadays i'd be curious to ask in fact i shall ask obviously um honey um you what part race plays here and incidentally that that reference back uh, characters suddenly emerge from you know my beautiful laundrette um but in fact (laughs) it's, it's you know it's not as if they've been in a museum and taken out of a glass case they've changed everything has changed and one of our one of the difficulties about talking about race in this country is it seems to me everything gets kind of petrified, stuck, you know, but in fact it's very, very fluid and those fluidities, it seems to me, are wonderfully caught in this novel. Anyway, I, he doesn't want puffs from me and perhaps, I don't know if you could pick up any of those remarks, uh, honey. Um, well, I guess I grew up as a
2: paki. That's what we were known as and, and I was referred to at school. And it's very interesting if you, as you say, if you uh, track the use of the language um, to the present, you get a really good sense of what's been going on in Britain. There was a time, for instance, in the seventies, when we were all we, we all referred to ourselves as black. Um, and my, I remember my mum saying to me, well, I don't know why you call yourself black, you're not black at all, you're actually beige. <laughs> she'd say. And I said, well, it's a political term, mum, isn't it? She'd say, well, it seems rather inaccurate, doesn't it? You're you know, more or less entirely white, she'd say. And I'm your mother. So, it's, you know, there's quite a stretch between the political meaning of a word and, and, and a true description of, of yourself. Um, but I think, I mean, I've lived through from the 1950s up to the present from a time when Britain saw itself as more or less entirely white. And not only that, there was a time I remember really in the 60s, I guess, when to be a black or an Asian person really was to be, you were, people took it for granted that you were inferior. They just did. You just were. It was a fact. You know, And I, I, my dad felt that sense of inferiority all the time in front of what he considered to be the, the British, the English, the, you know, the race that had colonized his country. So for me to write from the 50s until the present day and to write about race is to write about the history of this country. But it wasn't a subject that most people have thought about or written about for ages. Uh, or very much until until recently and certainly white writers hardly ever wrote about the what, they, what was known as the coloured problem or whatever or immigration um, but it's something I've tried to do because it's something that I've lived through and my family lived through and so on and I think it's the a hugely significant and profound change certainly in terms of what's gone on in this country if you Think of what Britain was like in the '50s and what it's like now, not a huge period of time, but a complete change in the racial makeup of this country, and not only that a sense a completely different sense of how we
1: think and speak about ourselves but a kind of wonderful mixture in the novel I mean when you were reading it out um it, it was quite evident that, you know, the <laughs> a lot of people were extremely amused. It, it came over as you got as many laughs as a comic novelist could expect. And yet I, I detect a terrific vein of sort of, um, of, of, of sort of subterranean pessimism in the novel. I mean, the, the, Jamal is, is really a very, very sad figure. And also, you know, to go back to Omar, I, I, I find the, you know, the kind of later career of Omar to be rather kind of de- depressing. I mean, could, could you oh, really? LAUGHTER <Well, laughs> <laughs> Well, part of the fact he tells Tony Blair he should, once he's done with Baghdad, he should start on Bradford, um, and of course he's he's also a kind of a, a New Labour sort of success story as well. Yeah, I'm rather I'm rather bewildered by this, John.
2: Actually, I find the whole thing to be incredibly optimistic and very, very light and really funny and you find it really dark. No, and I sad.
1: don't. No, no, I don't. No, I mean, like everyone, I sort of, I, 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 I laugh my head <laughs> Seems off. Seems to of me it. to be and really I, cheerful. I, I, I thought the psychoanalytic jokes were wonderful. I sort of, but, the, but, but, I mean, it's sort of, um, there is a certain kind of, you will agree, there is a certain kind of where do we go now feeling about Melancholy. It's melancholy. Yeah. What's that thing about, social mobility has been achieved, but what after social mobility? I mean, you have, you have a, well, you would be miserable if you looked at the world there, wouldn't you? I mean... Well, it's civilization, it's discontent. But you seem to be moved into the discontent phase quite sort of... Uh... Well, you've got to have some discontent in a book. Otherwise,
2: no one would want to read it. The books are, a, you know, are involved with discontent. Um, it seems to me that the world is a discontented place, and all the better for being so, it seems to me. Um, oh, I think they're really cheerful. But I always think my work's a comedy. It's really funny,
0: <laughs>
2: and everybody else says they're so
1: sad, they're so moving, so grave. Well, you, you would, wouldn't say that the, the kind of the story of Vegeta is terribly sort of happy, would you? I mean, the poor woman has really sort of uh, had a terrible life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What yeah. with her father and.
2: Yeah, all the other miserable stuff that happens
1: to. No, I mean, perhaps I should ask—is any kind of question from the floor on this subject? Or would anyone like to come in who's who's actually got a view on on uh, on this particular novel or anything else of um, of, of Hanif's?
0: I, I agree. I mean, I I, I found it um, I found it quite depressing, as well as there being a sense of a, a comedy to it. I, I chuckled my way through it, but like you. There was a sense of uh, uh, I got quite depressed reading it. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, for, for me, that, that hinged that hinged with a sense of, of disconnection between the characters. Um, I mean that on one level, it seemed to me that, that it was quite comic, but on another level, it seemed to me as though there was a, a sense of, of um, of, of, of disconnection between them. And I just wondered if, if you've got any response to that, or any understanding on your part I think that's that.
2: probably my view of the world, actually, then. Actually, the world is a very, very funny place, but it's very dark and hard and painful at the same time. That seems to me to be just about it, actually. That without either of those things, you wouldn't have a true apprehension of what was going on. But if you didn't see that it was a terrible place and funny at the same time, you'd sort of miss the point,
1: yeah, yeah. This is a terrible presumption, but could I ask you to, to read that last rather kind of oh no, I can't, no, no, from, no, no 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 it's horrible that bit Chat That's forty re- no no that's too dark you read it I, I don't, I, <laughs> one of the questions I was going to ask you is that you you do like autobiographical narration and I was wondering what kind of voice you thought the reader should hear presumably your voice is that right but not in the Buddha of Suburbia perhaps that funny Englishman has a different voice does he? he. Um. When you're writing,
2: you find a voice that's sort of, that you can sustain, that seems to be able to say the sort of things that you want to say, that is both funny and sad and this and that and the other, and you find a position. It's like a director finding a, a place to put the camera where you can speak from with ease. And so when I wrote The Buddha and when I wrote this and the other stuff I write, you find a voice that enables you to say what it is you want to say. I said bluntly, it's Jamal's voice, your voice, as you wrote it. I don't know. Um, well it's a put on voice it's yes. an act I'm, I'm like an actor I'm doing a, a role and then you realise the role is yourself um, but it's not a, uh, you did begin as a playwright didn't you was
1: that, was that your, your first yeah I wouldn't hold that against me no I don't no, <laughs> no, no, no I don't. Um, anyway I, I, I you know this, this is the end of the book I, I, it doesn't give anything away it's, not, it's not, not, not in fact divulging anything but I found it unutterably you no, did like, utterly moving Um, I am no longer young and not yet old I have reached the age of wondering how I will live and what I will do with my remaining time and desire I know at least that I need to work that I want to read and think and write and to eat and talk with friends and colleagues Rafi, his son will soon be an adult I want to travel with him and his mother if I can raise their interest to the places I've loved showing them Italian churches and having dinner in Rome. We could see Indian cities, bookshops in Paris, canals in Hertfordshire, waterfalls in Brazil, museums in Barcelona. I am not, I feel certain, finished with love, either in its benign or disorderly form, nor it with me. I shake myself and get up. I have been sitting dreamily in my chair for a long time. The bell has rung at least twice, you see, patience. Maria must have gone to the market. I go to the door and let the patient in. He takes off his coat and shoes and lies down on the couch. I sit just behind his head where I can hear him without being seen. For a while, he says nothing. I empty my mind, aware only of my breathing and of his as we both wait for the stranger inside him to begin speaking. I mean, it's terribly powerful cool, but it's uh, it does leave one sort of suspended in a way I mean this this immense vacuous silence between two people and the novel itself the title you know is, is about communication but it's you know there are so many ironies it seems to me that that Hanif wreathes around these themes that uh, that sorry I does anyone would anyone like to come in on on any aspect of uh,
0: you know, what are I you was saying expect- you find it dark? Yeah,
2: I,
1: well, I didn't find not it I, dark, but yeah. sort of. I mean, it, 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 it is it's rather like, it, it is rather like sort of man alone. Malone dies. Beckett, yeah. you know, sort uh, of the,
0: the Maybe because I'm in that business as well, so I'm used to these kind of silences. And, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I mean, f- what what intrigued me about reading it, and I read it one night, one sleepless sleepless night, and I, it kept me awake, and I don't know why. You know, I couldn't stop reading it. Normally I fall asleep when I read at night. And um, I'm not quite sure. It was so much like life for me, like what life is like, um, that it, on the one hand, fascinated me and yet surprised me. And um, I, w- I was wondering why you chose a psychoanalyst as your protagonist. Which, you know, what
2: uh, would I'm you. Really, are you an analyst? You're a therapist? Well, I spend all my, most of my time on my own. So I really envy you your job.
0: <laughs>
2: it's fantastic, you spend the whole day listening to other people. And sometimes I listen to other people because I have students, I teach. And when I listen to them, I'm really fascinated by their stories and by their lives. And then I know I have to go into a room and write a story. So I really envy you your work. And I envy you the depth of your contact with other people. Um, so I can imagine myself into being an analyst, I guess. Even though I've never done it. And many of my friends are analysts. Um, and it seems to me that you're doing something that's really useful. And, uh, and good, even though I know analysts hate to admit that. And also that you're doing something really intelligent. That you're dealing with people's childhoods, with their religion, with their sexuality, with their, with their wishes their desires, the deepest things. That this is a very, very honourable scrutiny of another person's intelligence. What?
0: It's too good to
2: be true. Taking another person very, very seriously. That's what you do for a living, isn't it? It's a funny job to have, but that's what you do. Um, So I thought I can imagine doing that. So I can take that point of view as as my point of view as uh, uh, as a starting point for this book. But the book isn't about analysing people. There are no case studies in this book. It's about an analyst and his life, as it were, outside the couch.
1: It's not uh, about his work. It is about secrets, though, isn't it? I mean, are all secrets ugly, as I mean, that wonderful image about being like the car mechanic under the car getting covered with, you know, garbage that's coming out of the sump and things.
2: Well, I guess if you're an analyst and you would know better than me, you, you, you tend to hear on the whole things that other people hide from others, which is their truth. And if you're a novelist, one of the things you're concerned about is the truth about life. That's your job as a writer. It was interesting what you were saying earlier on about talking about race. John was saying something about that where, do you, where, do you, where do you hear serious conversation about race today? Well, I was watching a program last night about the city. Um, and people were talking about the behavior of dealers and bankers during the recent crash. And they were saying, oh, well, they're like buffalo. And then they were saying, oh, they're like birds, you know, all flocking together and stuff. And I thought, these people are very, very intelligent, they know a lot about economics, but they they have no understanding of human behavior at all. And I thought, well, where do you go? If you want to learn about human behavior and what people are really doing, well, well, if you want to hear something intelligent about the way the world is, you might read a novel, actually. And I was thinking, well, novels are quite useful then in that sense, actually. I mean, people are talking all the time about the novel's useless, it's dead, you know, it's like the symphony or uh, making lace. It's you know, had its day, but actually, novels, as John seemed to be saying earlier on, are actually rather useful as just, uh, as uh, uh, as being a vocabulary and a description of in depth of of what people are like, of and, and of what the world is like, what society is like, and what the inner life of a man is like. So. I think
1: too that one of the books which is which which comes up time and again. Um, in, in, in this novel is, is is Freud on jokes, and jokes can be incredibly serious. And and I don't I don't know any. There's no novelist I know can actually sort of um, surprise you with a joke, you know, at, like like a like a punch to the solar plexus as as, as Hanif can. This, this is you know, In chapter forty two, the end. It, it, I'm not giving anything away when I say the novel ends with the you know the atrocity, the underground explosion atrocity in in, in July two thousand and five. Um, uh, Henry was, was on the phone. This, is, this, in fact, is the man who's um, uh, dating Miriam, the, 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 the director of theatre who's, who's, who's dating the, uh, the hero's sister, Miriam. Henry was on the phone continually. I didn't mention my little passion for the mule woman, but in my mind I went over the evening we'd spent together. Henry insisted we go together to the cross to lay flowers. Oh, England, England, he moaned. I'd never heard him use those words unironically. He was very gloomy and agitated about the deaths and also about the attitude of Lisa. I can't bear to hear what she has to say, like what... And this is talking about the bombers, as you think. Why would a young, articulate kid from a decent family, well-educated and intelligent, with everything in front of him, become a zealot, destroying thousands of lives? I'm thinking of Tony Blair, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that, that joke is, uh, I mean, it, 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 it just actually sort of leaps out of the page. And, of course, you know, automatically your brain is thinking, yes, sir, of course, why did these young cricket-playing... Why, why do they drop... Why do, why? And then suddenly... The, and, and, and Freud is right. I mean, your you know, jokes really do tell... And it seems to me... That, novelists can do that kind of thing. No politician can tell a good joke. I mean, they sort of, they, it's just not in their, in their kind of, in their power to do so. The, the book does have wonderful sort of uh, laughs in it, I have to say, even though I, I've actually been, been, as it were, sort of pulling the kind of funeral bell on it a bit. Yeah, you've been s- just said how miserable it was. So. Yeah. No, I don't, I, I don't think it's miserable. No, I, I, um, discontent, I think I would say. Yes. And also, it's it's got a wonderful cover, both on the hard and the the paperback. But for some reason, Faber decided to go for Freud pansexuality, and it's white people copulating. Um, And it seems to me there's much more than that in the book, even though the. Did you you choose the the cover design? No, mate. (laughs) But it.
2: Can't tell a book by its cover, John. You
1: knew that. Well, no, exactly. It does contain secrets. I haven't read the novel yet, but I intend to do so tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> having heard what you've, uh, what, you've, uh, what, what you've spoken about it. Um, I'm deeply distressed to think that colored people have ever felt inferior to, to white people, but I'm wondering what you think now that the you know, the most important man in the world politically is a, a, a person of mixed blood. Um, I mean, don't you think that will change things enormously? I have a great friend who's 22 of mixed blood, and he said he just never could have imagined that that Obama could be elected, and he believes, and I think so too, that this is going to make the entire problem, is going to completely change it. Do you agree?
2: Well, I'm really pleased as a Muslim in the White House. (laughs) I'm really pleased that, it's fantastic, one of our chaps is finally here. (laughs) (laughs) It's finally taken over. A
1: funny kind of American. Yeah,
2: that's right. Um, I'm absolutely delighted, like like everybody else, um, and and the symbolism, um, it seems to me to be is clearly as you should guess, what's most important about it that it shows my kids that it shows all of us that uh, somebody from who's mixed race can 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 reach that position. It's incredibly encouraging, as you know. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. I mean, we had a woman, Prime Minister, I don't know whether any of you ever remember that. And then lots of women felt really cheered for ages. About that, so. um, John, are you gonna say something? I just
1: said that, that's one thing that hasn't come up is the novel, which is very complex in its structure, has a number of different time settings, including the 70s and the 80s, and um, right the way through to the 21st century. It's very, very hard for a novelist to do that and to knit these, uh, these kind of chronologies together but it is done wonderfully in the novel. It was ju- that was just apropos of, of, um, of Hany's throwaway remark about, um, about the 80s There you go
0: Hello um, Mr Sutherland mentioned that um, you were a philosophy graduate and um, not just in this book but in your other work as well. It seems like sort of Freud and other sort of continental philosophers, if you want to put them in that kind of bag influence your work a lot more than probably the the philosophy that you were that you were taught <coughs> that that um that you were educated and i was wondering whether you f- you feel that maybe freud and 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 people maybe of his kin have a greater access to 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 truth in 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 bigardberg commerce than say the sort of anglo-american philosophers that y- i guess you probably would have studied
2: well, I read philosophy at university at King's College, and I also studied at University College in Birkbeck and you know, other parts of London University. Um, and I read philosophy at university because I thought that philosophy would be, you know, would answer my questions about the meaning of life, about childhood, about sexuality, about human relationships, about religion, the future, and all that stuff. Um, actually, if you read philosophy in the, in, in, in the 70s and 80s, it was really rather abstract and very dry, and it was quite close to uh, some uh, science, I guess. I remember T- Ted Hundrick saying it should be like science, it should be provable. So when I began to, I began to read psychoanalysis, I found that the questions that I was interested in were really, were really addressed there. So if you look at the history of psychoanalysis in the 20th century and the incredible people who have thought about these questions, if you want to know about sexuality, if you want to know about death, if you want to know about childhood, if you want to know about masochism, if you want to know about all that stuff, um, you're much more likely to find it in studies on the unconscious and psychoanalysis than you are in philosophy. So I was guided by Richard Volheim, who taught at um, uh, university, University College when I was there. You'll find it in 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 psychoanalysis much more than you will in philosophy, and you'll also find it in everything that came out of psychoanalysis, which is the cinema of the twentieth century and study of the unconscious, and uh, of course poetry, uh, literature, and so on. And psychoanalysis in those days was very close to literature, to the cinema, to the theatre, and so on. It was all of this, you know, it was all the same stuff. Um, so that's how I got interested in psychoanalysis and all that stuff. It's really to do with thinking about the most important questions about life. And I, I think now that psychoanalysis is particularly important because of the return of religion and because of the use of, of, uh, of drugs in treating mental illness and because of the use of something called CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, which is also used on the NHS in terms of treating people who do suffer from mental illness, none of which are solutions that seem to me to be properly adequate, and that take the human subject, you know, fully rounded, alive, um, as 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 a total entity. So, what I'm interested in is how do we think about other people, what value are they, and where do we look at them from? And it seems to me that the novel and psychoanalysis are quite close in taking the human being as a complete thing. Um, And that we need that, actually, more and more in a period of uh, of dislocation.
3: Hi. Um, In relation to um, the early topic, so if you are so interested in the psychoanalytical theory and how it um, discerfers the human character, and also if you identify with the character of the psychoanalyst so much. Have you ever thought about um, going into that
2: route? So being a psychoanalyst myself? Yeah. Look at me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't want me psychoanalyzing you. I've got students and you know, within five minutes I want to nut them. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have the patience. My character's different to that. So I'm fascinated by it and I can imagine my way into it enough to write a book about it. But you wouldn't want me interpreting your dreams. that would be insane. Um, it's a different kind of patience that I have. I couldn't write a book, but I wouldn't be able to listen to you for 10 minutes without, you know, pacing up and down and stabbing myself in the eye with a biro. and I've got a different kind of agitation. and I, But I admire it, the ability to, to listen to other people. It's an incredible ability, and I, I'm beginning to develop it, actually, I have to say. My children have noticed. <laughs> and it's a very hard thing to do, is to listen to other people without either wanting to kill them or wanting to kill yourself. <laughs> people tell me the men find it particularly difficult. I have to say that I do too. And this um, is true. It's a, great, uh, it's a great ability, it seems to me. Hello, Um. you
0: mentioned uh, About the use of novels Um, and as as a novelist and a philosopher and having done philosophy um, do you think that that novels are somehow better if they do have a use or do you think that novels all they require is to be a novel and either to entertain or to do something I mean do, do they require use well, they, well, they are, it.
2: yeah, they do. They're, it seems, I don't read novels. I haven't read a novel for years. <laughs> but, I, but I I happen to believe they're very useful.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Not for a long time. Well, why haven't you? I've got better things to do, mate.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 enough, I, I mean, there's a question. Another question. I'm sorry. I don't want. I don't want to. You've got to start. You read about. loads of novels. Do you know. About uh, no, it? I, I just say that, 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 that it, one of the one of the aspects of 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 Hannes work which hasn't perhaps been touched on. I don't know if it's worth touching on. Is that um, it, it, there's, there's a line in in something to tell you when he says that all of England is becoming London, and it strikes me that that very. No other novelist that I know has, has been so, sort of as it were, exact in his topography. I mean, it's a long way from Bromley, I suspect, to Shepard Bush. Um, I, I wonder if you could say something. Do you regard yourself as a, as a London novelist? Because so? I think you're very good on, on, you know, the kind of urban geography. Uh, well, I mean, not the cultures that go with that geography as well.
2: Well, I just write about the stuff that I see around me if I see something funny or amusing up the road, and then I'll put it in a book. And it seems to me too, that you, whatever, you take this little bit of earth and you write about it and it becomes representative of the rest of the world in some way.
1: But is, is, is England turning into London, or London sort of taking over, over England in the sense that, I mean, obviously it is the great unmelting pot, isn't it? I mean, really...
2: Well, I come from the suburbs, so coming to London was a huge relief for me, you know, to see people who are not white and to hear other languages and to, be in a place that where people didn't wash their cars every Sunday.
4: Hi, um, just to follow up on the discussion of philosophy to a certain extent. Um, thinking about the Buddha of suburbia for a second, Kareem strikes me as being a fabulous character. Having grown up and myself about the same sort of time in the seventies, um, I love the fact that he's actually motivated by very little of any sort of that's particularly worthy. He seems to me to be completely. Driven by the pleasure principle. Um, and that seems to be a much more sensible way to approach life. The people who tend to come a cropper are those with high ideals um, <coughs> in that particular novel. Well, it seems to what me like anyway. Gordon um, Brown, you mean? <laughs> well, yeah. But it wasn't, I, I, I know I, what you mean. I've read yeah. the novel a couple of times, I didn't come across him. But um, yeah, I just wondered you know, if you wanted to comment on the fact that whilst I think it is important that novels have a role to play in the sort of intellectual life, there's a lot to be said for. Well, you've just said it yourself, you've got better things to do, mate. I mean, uh, Kareem as a character <laughs> strikes me as being fascinating from that point of view.
2: Well, Kareem in The Borough of Suburbia is, as you suggest, a character that's, who's driven by um, a desire for pleasure in his genitals. And you can see that that will be sensible in a character who was, how old is he in his early 20s? But you wouldn't want that in someone who was older. It would become rather gross and rather loathsome by then. And and as you get older, you have to become more altruistic, and more, more moral, and more charitable. Um, and it seems to me that that's the the best way around, rather than someone who was in the 20s was charitable and someone in their 50s who was driven by the desire for pleasure in their genitals. Be a horrible, horrible thing. <laughs> um, so the Buddha suburbia and, uh, let's say, something to tell you are Related to one another, but something to tell you is a much darker book. Um, and there are far more, far more, as it were, other people in it. Uh, the Buddha's suburb is more solipsistic, and there are other people admitted into the world later on, which makes the world much more pleasant. It seems to me that one's own pleasures um, are far less interesting as you get older than the, than the company of other people and the pleasure of other uh, other people, the pleasure of, the, of their company and the pleasure that they have. Actually, that in a way your own pleasures sort of fall away and become much less interesting to you than other stuff. And that seems to me to be the best way around. Actually, yeah.
1: But we are allowed a little bit, aren't we? Not you, Andrew. You have uh, enough as it is already. Fine. It seems to okay. me
2: much more than you're due.
0: Yes, you seem to suggest that social mobility is not ultimately a satisfying attainment. So what do you suggest to be uh, the next worthwhile pursuit? Yes.
2: <laughs> social mobi- mobility? Yeah. Thank you. The lady there was asking about social mobi- mobility. Um, well, I come from Bromley and for me to come to London was, was a fantastic jump. Um, and there's nobody more socially mobile than me. I met the Queen the other day. <laughs> she was great.
0: You're
2: a uh, commander of the British Empire. I am a commander of the British Empire, yes. I noticed that Benjamin Zeph and I gave his back. You uh, didn't notice it had Empire, We didn't see that bit <laughs> in it. When he got his glasses on he gave it back. I thought that was really funny. <laughs>
1: You're not gonna give your back.
2: I'm not gonna give mine back, no. I wear it naked. Um, if you come from a dull place, it seems to me it's your duty to go to a more interesting place and that's what I consider social m- mobility to what be.
0: Is, what is beyond? I said you said it was not satisfying,
2: not the, the ultimate goal. Well, The ultimate goal uh, is to be with people who interest you, who you like, whose company you enjoy and who like you. If you can, if you're, can be so lucky to find that, then you're all right, it seems to me. Um, but I don't think that moving up the class system would necessarily be uh, that interesting in itself, no. Not to be <laughs> <laughs> Yes, sorry, I
3: thought you'd put your hand up before I wasn't sure. Sorry. Um, wasn't quite OK, hi. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I was just interested in how you write. When you get an idea, do you research it and then spend a certain amount of time every day, You're quite... Um, strict with yourself, or, how, or does it change according to a novel that you're working on? Just is interesting. Well I've
2: I, I got quite a lot of friends who are writers Thank you. Um, And most of them are, most of us are quite disciplined. And I, I went out today for lunch and when I got home in the afternoon, I thought, there's nothing else to do, is there? <laughs> I thought I got home at about three o'clock and then I thought well, I'm going out later to, to come here and I thought well, what else is there to do what am I going to do and I racked my brains actually for other things I thought should I go for a walk I looked out the window looked a bit dodgy outside and then I thought well I'm going to have to write something um, so it's And it's always entertaining to write. It's always a pleasure to write. Writers do like to write. They always complain, oh, it's so difficult, it's so painful, oh, I was bleeding from the ears yesterday. Oh, it's so awful, bollocks. Um, But it's really fun to do. Writers really like to do it. If you, you know, if it's your thing, if that's what you like to do, it's a real pleasure to do. Um. People talk about discipline as though, you know, you're running a marathon, but actually most writers actually quite enjoy to do it. I think you have to give yourself a kick. You know, you think, oh, would I rather watch daytime TV or would I, you know, want to write a novel? Well, obviously you'd rather watch daytime TV. Anybody (laughs) would. And you think, I'll give myself a kick and I'll go to my desk and start writing this book.
1: On the question of writing, you've had the odd brush with censorship do you, do you feel like, did that, that bother you at all I mean I think weddings are beheadings
2: yeah yeah it's always the BBC that censors you I always find they're always the worst and the most high handed the most self-righteous it's always the BBC I find um, but on the whole no one's fucked around with my work at all to be honest
1: no except the except Except for BBC. Except yeah. BBC yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So you think writers are fairly free in this country to, to write about almost anything? Or do you, do you feel free? I mean, you, you've described just going back, and to some extent you're sort of really indulging yourself in what you like doing best. But you feel I do, yeah, free. but if I was in
2: Pakistan, you know, I, you'd be in jail, being eaten alive by rats if you read the stuff that I wrote in, in Pakistan, for instance. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too... too uh, too cheerful about one's own situation when there arises, particularly in the Muslim world, who are terrified all the time of what may or may not happen to them, etc. Yeah. You're published in
0: Pakistan.
2: They're imported, they're not published.
0: In your extract, you referred to um, a woman, I think, who talks a lot until she f- she's trying to find something to say and you referred to the stuff that comes out of an mouth. I think I'm right, sort of you alluded to it as being like rubbish. And I'm wondering, as a writer, how you know when you've actually got something to say and you're not just talking a load of rubbish.
2: That's a very good question because you might write a lot and I, I think it's probably the case that a lot of writers write a lot and then you look back, let's suppose you get up in the morning and you write for an hour and you write whatever let's say comes into your mind and suppose it's an exercise like, that could be, could be called something like free writing which would be uh, writing equivalent of free association where you might say whatever comes into your mind in front of analysis, in an an analysis. And in the free writing you you would write about what happened to you yesterday, what happened to you when you was a child, what you wished might happen to you, what somebody said to you two days ago, whatever. And then you might look at it later. And you'd say most of this, and you'd notice two or three bits that seemed interesting and the words seemed in a good order. So you might take those bits and then you put them in a piece of work that was serious. And you would just know your taste, your judgment, your sense of what writing is, would tell you that those bits were good bits and the rest of it was just bollocks. And you would use your judgment like that all the time in your work. You would just glance through a page I've got a friend who's a painter and she said something really interesting to me the other day about what she does. When she's done, finished a painting or doing a painting, she would just sit in front of it and look at it for ages. And after a while, it would occur to her that that bit was in the wrong place and she should do that bit more or whatever. And when you're writing, you'd look at a piece for ages and it would occur to you after a bit that that bit was in the wrong place, the wrong word. And you, I couldn't, explain to you how I would know that. I would just say that it was instinctive, that I would, knew, I would know that was the wrong bit in the wrong place. So that's how I would describe what I would do, that it would be about a particular kind of knowing about something that I had learned, but I, that I wouldn't be able to usefully and consciously describe to you. But you would see that something would jump out, that that would be useful, a good bit, a story, a potential story. Uh, and that's all I can say.
1: I think that's one more question, and then I, I think Hanif has agreed to sign book copies of your books. Yeah. And, and the, and the Some of yours to sign as well. <laughs> well one, one, one more? Yes. One more, yeah. oh, yes. One more at the back, thank you. All the way back down the cricket pitch.
3: Um, very close to math. All right. Um, we're studying um, Buddhist suburbia. A levels, and um, you said early on that the world is full of discontent. And one thing we've noticed um, was that many characters in the Buddhist suburbia are full of idealism, and um, or and they end up being disappointed in you know how things pan out. And we've noticed that um, Karim is. Um, as a ho- as a person isn't really you know doesn't have that drive compared to the other characters and s- uh, say like um Eva, she you know she climbs she moves up the class system and you know um would you say that um even if because uh, are you telling us that um you know you sh- we shouldn't really um become too passionate, um we shouldn't put too much passion into our own, own ideals because in the end we'll end up be being disappointed.
2: Um, no, I wouldn't say that at all. I'm not um, an advocate of disappointment. I'm an advocate of cheerfulness. There may or may not be disappointment at the end of your cheerfulness. It's like having a hangover, but I would suggest that you, know, you have a good time first. So my characters, when they're young, rush into things and then they learn the lesson. The lesson might be that it might be better to rush into things more. That you should follow your desire and then crash and burn as, you, you know, as it happens. But I would, I would never advocate, it's not my job to advocate any particular way of living. I don't think it's a novelist's job to do that. I think it's the job of the writer to describe some of the things that go on in the world and its absurdity. But I would certainly not recommend that you or anybody else live in any particular way. You wouldn't want my recommendations.
1: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.